Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we are talking with Dr. Nanika Kaur about the concept of respectful and non-punitive parenting. What is that? But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about, you know, like, what does that mean for us as parents? I don't know, Steph. I was, I've been thinking a lot about Nanika because she has, you know, that there's this, like, personality that soothes me, like their voice is calming and and everything about them makes me want to try to emulate that. Of course, I I have none of that soothing voice. I'm like, you know, too much and like never, ever would be accused of like the soothing voice that Dr. Kaur has. However, I love her idea of positive parenting. But I think back to my years of parenting and the changes I've made along the way. And it's like, you know, I grew up in a house where there was punishment. I think we all did. And it did feel like crap. Like I hated this idea of like, when you're in my house, you'll do, like, it just felt so powerless. Did you grow up with that? Totally. I just remember thinking like, I can't wait to get out of here. So I don't have to be in someone else's house and do what they say. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like I grew up more in a house of like empty threats. We used to say now I'm the baby. So I don't know. My brother, I don't think would agree with that. And my sister didn't really get in trouble, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) No, no, she was such a, not not because she should have gotten in trouble. She was the mediator. Like she, no, she was really, really, quote, good for lack of a better. And she's the middle or the oldest? The middle. Oh, that's perfect. Because it didn't make sense that she was the oldest. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. Because I think secretaries of state who mediate are often middle kids. I think I read once, which is so Oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I think there's also like an evolution. I think about like, we were just talking about this with Zach last night, actually, because something came up oh, his cousin, who's the same age, was saying to him, like, you know, if we wanted to X, Y, Z, whatever it was, we wouldn't have been allowed to, but because he's the baby, like her little brother, like, you know, so he's allowed to do whatever. And Zach even made the comment. He's like, yeah, whatever. He's like, I think that just comes with parenting, right? Because you don't do what you do with the first, with the last. I was like, oh my God, that is so funny. Well, it's also, it's so generous. Like, you know, it is generous. Yeah, it's very sweet. (laughs) Well, so I think about this idea of punishment, which I had to start out with because I didn't know anything else. Yeah. And then I kind of got into this idea of consequences, which some would say is really no different than punishment. But it felt like, let me think first about what makes sense for what went wrong. So it's like, if it was you know, something related to the phone, I would have felt like, well, then give me your phone. You you abuse that privilege, give me the phone. So that was probably most of my parenting. Yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say same. I often had a hard time, like, like you're saying, like tying the, the punishment to the crime because sometimes it wasn't as linear or I couldn't find, like, I don't know, it's funny. I remember there were times where Todd coached all of our kids growing up in baseball. And there would be that random game, you know, every uh, every couple years, you'd get a call from a parent, Bobby's not coming to the ball game today. Or the kid had to call and say, I'm sorry, coach, I can't come to the game. Of course, like an hour before the game, and Todd's already done the lineup, spent two hours in the basement the night before because he's being punished. And Todd's like, wait, why am I being punished? <laughs> Right. And like, you know, what? and why is the team being punished? He didn't do something on the field. 
You know what I mean? So it's funny because we've had that kind of like in that exact conversation about like, you know, tying the right punishment to the right quote, you know, crime. Yeah, that's interesting because really there's a ripple effect yeah. on that one. Like, yes, it's, you're yes. not just hurt, you're hurting the team. And we want to teach our kids that you're part of a team. You owe them something. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Todd's like, wait a minute. Wait, we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. But also I would say I have done this and it, it, I, this was effective sitting with the kid probably after I blew up and saying, what do you think is appropriate? And that one I really liked because I felt like it was a team effort. Yeah, agreed. Well, and how many times have we been told in in our 14 years about, you know, letting the kid come up with, well, what do you think the punishment will be? Because they are likely, I remember the line is always like, they are more likely to come up, they are likely to come up with something uh, harsher than you would have. I, you know, it's funny. I have heard that. And I probably started doing it because of listening to people suggest it. So I do like the approach, but I can't say that my kids were um, more extreme than I would have been. Like they did not surprise me with like me saying, well, why don't we temper it a little bit? I did not have those kids. (laughs) Well, and you know what's funny? I I just, I just had this happen the other day with a friend, you know, perspective, right? Where when you are in it, it's so hard. And we've had, I remember Sue... I think it was when I found something on Zach's phone. Yeah, like he was in like seventh grade. And again, like your seventh grader was your fourth born. And I remember you and the therapist both saying like, oh, you know, this is like the best thing that could happen because it's such a like happy accident and it's so benign. And I'm like freaking out, right? He's my oldest. He, I've never been in this spot before. And I just like, and of course, in retrospect, it's like, oh my God, right, who cares? But, but at the time... It's everything. And you don't know how the story goes. And I just had it happen with a friend. She was relaying a story of something that happened with her kid. You know, and she's in the thick of it. And I said, I know that if I were in your shoes, I would be looking for the punishment too. I know I would. So I don't want, and I hear you and I feel you and I would be so where you are, but sitting where I'm sitting, I'm like, you know, she already feels bad enough, right? But you can't when you're the parent. Like, you can't be in that position. You can't be in both places. You can't have the perspective and be sitting in, like, mired in it. I mean, that's the beauty of having more than one kid, if you're lucky enough to do that or wanted that. I think with each subsequent kid, my heart, my visceral reaction, my immediate reaction, I could, I could kind of suppress that a little bit more with each subsequent kid. And also, I would say that so much of my parenting was about being in control and having the power. And until I saw that I didn't want to do that anymore, like my youngest is so lucky. He doesn't think it, but he's so lucky because um, he had the benefit of like years of letting go of that power, like whittling away at the notion that I could control the outcome. And so like he was much more of a participant and, and much more, I would say, not exactly Nanika's perspective, but like inching up on it. Which is why I always say if I had a sixth kid, I'd probably be a really good parent. But even <laughs> even with my youngest, he he was much more involved in, I'm not really thrilled with that. We're not really thrilled with that. Like, you know, what what could happen differently? Why did it happen? All the questions she talks about in that we should be having in a conversation with our kids, I think we got better at it. You know, it's like an apprenticeship. Hopefully over the years you get better. And that unfortunate first kid. Oh, my God. Sorry. I know. Well, it's like, right, because you don't, you know what? I mean, I think so much of it, 
at least for me, is the fear, right? Like, oh my God, like this hiccup, this bump, like you go, like as Todd used to say, like my head gets on a train, right? Oh, if this happens, then this happens and this happens. And like, oh my God, he's going to be in jail. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the sequencing is so ridiculous, but you have nothing. You only have that moment and that, that kid in front of you. And it's, it is really hard. And like, I, it's funny. I was just rehashing this with somebody uh, this week about seeing kids like these can be cousins, these can be friends, kids, where you get to see kids who are older and being like, wow, what did they do at my kids' current ages so that my kids look like that? You know what I mean? Like they talk to adults and they're like fun to be with. And they just, they seem like- they I'll tell you what they did. Do you want to know what they did? What? They grew up. <laughs> right, exactly. But that's so true, Sue. That's that all it is. So it's like, I mean, I I've know. heard people say, I just want to get through adolescence with my kids alive. Like, it's exactly. So <laughs> it's so true. It is so true. Um, no, it's so true. I, and it is. I want to go, I want to remind everybody, like, if you're listening to this great comment that Dr. Debbie Gilboa told us, she told us um, when you do this, like, they're going to end up in jail. You have put in too many what ifs. There's only a time. There's only an allowance in our lives for one, and when yeah. we go past one, we should turn on the brakes. Like nothing good happens after that. Yes, it's so funny. It is really funny though. It's funny. I'm thinking about this conversation with my girlfriend the other day, and I said to her, "I'm like, I know it's so hard to like stop your mind from like going to all these places." I was like, "But I know your kid, like." This is so not a thing. You know what I mean? But it's, and I was like, but I don't want to discount how you're feeling either. You know, it's like, you want to be totally supportive. And I was like, but you know, it's totally typical, right? (laughs) But it's so hard. It's so parenting, you know, not for the, like our conversation with our new friend, Jeff, yesterday, Sue, you know, it's not for the faint of heart and, you know, it's hard. There's lots of bumps and. Well, I think this, this conversation with Dr. Kaur is about trying something different and it's not about like in my mind, discarding everything else you've ever done. I think one of the things that we show in parenting is that there's really different ways to do this and do it well. And yeah. she offers a new way. And I would say like, I don't know, try it, right? Like there's no downside to trying it if it kind of speaks to you. If something about this idea of getting rid of punishment and consequences and handling it from a different, more loving space, like if it resonates with you, I don't know. I'd like a little bit of a do-over to see how that goes. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, and Sue, no, I love love what you just said because I think that, you know, we always say parenting is the most forgiving occupation, if you will, right? And so there is lots of room for trial and error. And frankly, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts is is the trial and error and being able to go back to, like I call them the go-backs, like being able to go back to the kids and say like, oh my God, you're right. Like, I was crazy when I responded that way. Or I, like, I think you've heard this many times, like where one of my kids would say to me, don't take it out on me because you're mad at him. And I'd be like, oh my God, she's so right. Like, right, right. And like, but in the moment, I'm like, that's ridiculous. And then like a couple hours later, I'm like, oh my God, you were totally right. I was upset with him and I took it out on you. I'm so sorry. But I love those because I, I, I think it shows them that like we are so flawed too and how important it is to be able to apologize. Okay, up next is our conversation with Dr. Nanika Kaur. We can't wait for you to join us.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Do you ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch? Or the tension is constantly traveling through your body? Or do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? That's just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. So this year, why not make small changes to your daily routine that can have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. And I know for sure that I need to reduce my stress. My stress is a running reel in my brain that doesn't stop about things I'm anxious about, about things I'm not anxious about, about stupid things that I don't know why I'm thinking about them. And when I sit down and turn on Headspace, I do get this feeling of a clear brain, a brain that is calmer. I feel less anxious. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash your teen and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash your teen today. Headspace.com slash your teen. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Our guest today is Dr. Nanika Kaur, clinical psychologist and mindful parenting advocate. Dr. Kaur helps parents who have a desire to parent in a respectful way, but feel held back by their histories with their own parents and caregivers. Dr. Kaur helps parents who have a desire to parent in a respectful way, but feel held back by their histories with their own parents and caregivers. Dr. Kaur, thank you so much for being here with us. So um, I'm fascinated with your theory of parenting called respect, I think you call it respectful parenting. And when I spoke with you, I was like really interested in this idea of a non-punitive approach, all about conversations and not about this idea of you having the like kind of this 
top-down relationship. And you say one thing, which it really struck me as um, like, just, I don't know, I don't want to be this. Instead of power over them, it's power with them. So the first time I spoke with you and you told me about this, I thought it sounds so amazing. But then I was like thinking afterwards, like, that's really hard. I mean, when you have teenagers, how do you kind of deal with all these scenarios and and just talk through them? They seem like the stakes are so much higher. So I'm going to give you an example. And this one may or may not be about someone I know. Your kid gets their driver's license, a really big moment. And it's so exciting that they can drive your other kids. They can't, you know, there's all these graduated driver licensing rules, but where we live, you could take your siblings, which maybe is the worst idea. But anyway, I took advantage of it. And that kid took another kid to a program that they were both at. And that kid came home without that other kid because they had a fight and one had the keys and got pissed off and left without the other one. So, you know, it kind of led to one of those, like, you will never drive again. (laughs) Um, And it did get out of control and I did have to pull back from that. But how does that fit into your paradigm? Well, I think that I understand is certainly a, a parent's desire to take the, take the keys away. And at the same time, that doesn't actually solve the problem of like, why did this child, what was so upsetting? Like, what happened that this child would leave another kid behind? I would want to solve that problem. I would want to know what is going on that this would be the solution the child comes up with to leave somebody behind. So I would want to have a conversation. But the idea is, I mean... In the moment, you make a good point, right? Like in the middle of these kinds of things, the idea is make sure everyone's safe first. Is that other child home? You know, like there's, uh, I think that there's a lot of times we come up with this idea that, you know, the first thing I want to do is punish this behavior. And, you know, what it, I'm wondering, uh, Sue, you know, what is your idea about why, like in the moment, why do you think a parent might think that taking the keys away might be helpful? I guess really the underlying feeling is angry, maybe even furious, or a part might be like they need to learn a lesson. And even maybe the the hope that there's a deterrent for future behavior. But if I'm being honest, it's probably really all about anger and control and having power. So like you want the kid to know how angry you are about it. And like the idea is just because you take the keys away, I mean, certainly you can prevent the child from potentially driving the car, but then the next time the child has the keys for the car, what's to stop them from doing the same thing again? You certainly, you haven't solved the problem in any way. You haven't found out why they would want they leave the kid behind. You haven't found out what, what was so upsetting to this child that they felt like that was their only recourse. So I would want to know those things because potentially finding out the inf- that information is the thing that would help that thing not happen again. Because potentially you help the child solve for that problem so that they don't feel like this is my only solution for this problem. If I feel like I I am in this situation where I've become so upset that I no longer want to be, you know, driving this child back home, what are my other options besides stranding the child? I, I, I would want to be helping my child figure out what those options are. Okay, I have another one for you. You find out that your teenager had a party at your house while you're out of town, and the police were called to shut down the party. What's the answer to that one? Again, like, where are the conversations, right? Like, there must be a conversation. Again, just punishing your child and saying you can't go out for the, ne- for the rest of the summer, 
that doesn't really solve your problem with the party because that does that mean you never leave the house again? You never leave the... Like, the idea is you have to solve the problem. Or if you want the pro, uh, the um, problematic behavior, the, the behavior that's problematic for you, if you want that to stop, you have to know the reasons why you want it to stop. You need to be able to, like, talk about what your expectations are. Does your child know very clearly what the expectations are. There's a lot of times where we as parents think our children know exactly what our rules are, and they don't. They don't really know. And so we need to be clear on just because I know what the rule is, does, it, does that mean that my child knows what the rule is and my child knows what I mean when I say that this is, this is what I expect you to do? A lot of times you'd be surprised to know how many teens don't actually know what their parents expected. Their idea was different. So in these examples, I got to be honest, those kids knew definitely that the expectations were, number one, if you take a sibling with you, you return with that sibling. And number two, when the parents are out of town or even in town, there are no parties at this house and definitely no police. (laughs) Right. Okay. So if they did know that, then what got in their way of not following that rule? That's what I would want to know. Is it peer pressure? Maybe it was peer pressure. Maybe their friends were pressuring them and they don't know what to do in those situations. I would want to help my child with that. The idea is you need to find, you need to be able to have a conversation with your child. And this is where I fall back on Ross Green and I use collaborative and proactive solutions, which is a way of communicating with your child in a way that does not imply that you are making a unilateral decision like, I'm taking the keys away and I've decided that you're not driving the car anymore. It's harder with with throwing parties. The only thing you can really do there in a unilateral way is like never leave your child alone. The idea is once they get to be teenagers, once they get to be that age, there's so many things that teenagers can do without your permission, right? And you, there's so much more that relies on trust, you don't know what your child is doing during the day while you're at work. You don't know what your child is doing when they say that they're, they're at school. There's a lot of things that rely on you're hoping your child is doing the thing that they said that they that you agree that they would be doing. And if the relationship with you and your child is such that your child doesn't believe that they are able to come to you with what's going on for them, like there's plenty of children that I work with. I work with lots of teenagers who get themselves into all kinds of pickles because they did not believe that they were able to go to their parent and say, here's a pickle I find myself in. They didn't trust that their parent would not be punishing. They did not trust that their parent would not be shaming. They didn't trust that their parent would help them with the problem. They imagined they would get in trouble. So my skepticism is, can it be both? In the moment, it might appear that there needs to be like some consequence in the moment. And then that talking happens like afterwards, kind of as the the emotions settle. Well, in the moment, the party's already happened. You didn't find out about it until you came back home. So what's, you can't, you can't, you can no longer prevent the party from having happened, right? It already did happen. So at this moment, punishing your child is like going back about more about us wanting to be retaliatory, rather than really solving our problem. It does not solve the problem of the party having happened. It does solve the problem of, I'm angry and I want my kid to know how angry I am, right? And I'm the boss of you. And I'm the <laughs> boss of you and, I'm, and I have more power than you and I can, I can, and I can lord that over you, if, I, if, you know, if I'm in a situation where I can. But that doesn't do anything to help your relationship. In fact, it erodes the relationship 
And then it also doesn't help you with the ultimate issue, which is how do I get my kid to not have parties when I'm not here, right? Like, it, because your kid still could have a party, right? You've punished them, but that doesn't stop them from having a party next time. So you, you have evidence. You work with teenagers and you work with their parents and you see that this works. I do. I do see that it works. And, and the thing that works about it is the, the fact that you are enlisting the child's concerns about the issue. The idea is that you go to the child and say, it looks like you're having problems not having parties. <laughs> like, it looks like you're having problems, like, keeping the house Following safe. The Let's rules. say, like, not necessarily, whatever the rule actually is. Because really, it's important to say what your expectation is. And if the expectation is, while I'm gone, you make sure that, I mean, why are the police being called, right? Whatever the reason the police are called, like, you make sure that none of those things are occurring, right? And that's my expectation, and so what gets in the way of your child meeting the expectation of not doing things that involve police, right? That involve the police being called. What gets in your way of your child doing that? Something does, right? And a lot of times parents decide that it's just my child wanting what they want when they want it. And that may be true, like in a sort of zoomed out way. But in a zoomed in way, your child did something because they had need they were trying to get met, what is the need? That is what a parent is trying to find out. What's the need they're trying to get met? And is there a healthier way that I can help my child get that need met? The problem is, is that so many people, if, you've, if you have historically used punishment with your child, it's going to be a lot harder for you to find out what that need is because your child might be more reticent to be honest. And the idea is with a lot of parents I work with who have younger children than teenagers, when you implement these, this kind of parenting right from the start, you don't always end up in the situation where your child feels um, worried about telling you what the truth is. So a child might be more willing to say, I'm being pressured to have a party and I know that that's against the rules, but I don't know what to do because I really want to be friends with these kids. Like a child might be more more likely to say that ahead of time when you've built up this relationship where there's nothing that you can't say to me. There's nothing that you can do that would result in me shaming you or making you feel bad about yourself. I might tell you that I'm angry. I might tell you that I'm disappointed. I might say this is really upsetting for me and I need some time to cool down. But you and me are always good no matter what. And when a child knows that you and me are always good no matter what, no matter what mistakes I make, they're more likely to be open about the mistakes that they are potentially about to be making. Okay, what if you simply have a defiant teen? They're just defying it. There's no like, oh, what's your issue with the law? What's your issue yeah. with not having parties? What's your No, they're just defiant. Period. Well, no human being is defiant in the in in a vacuum, right? There's a reason why they're being defiant. There if a child is being angry and sort of uncooperative, that child has an issue of some kind, right? That child is angry or that child is sad. Either way, that child needs help, right? And so it absolutely gets to a point with many parents where, I mean, I wouldn't have a job otherwise, right? Where it gets away from you. It gets away from you and it goes beyond what you feel you can handle. And at that point, you need outside help. Certainly, if you feel like I'm, I'm in a situation where I don't have any clue what to do and I feel like my child's safety is in danger or somebody's safety in this home is in danger, you absolutely need outside help. Like, absolutely. Okay, so this doesn't correct all. I mean, we still have teenagers being teenagers that sometimes need intervention. Well, absolutely. But, and not all parents have, like we talked about, sometimes if we've been raised in a way that where we've only been exposed to rewards and punishments and 
rewards and punishments aren't working with your child, you may not have any other idea what to do. So certainly you need outside help. Okay, so I've bought into everything you're saying, but now I'm surrounded by people who don't have the same philosophy. Like, for example, my the grandparents are over. And like the amount of eye rolling mm-hmm. is killing me. Mm-hmm. Or our, our friends, like our kids' friends' parents even, just feel like there's never a consequence in that house. How are, how are our kids supposed to play with their kids, right? So there's noise outside of our own decision-making. How, how do we navigate that? It sort of depends on how, how good you are in general at being a person who... Um, is, is like less influenced by other people, right? Like a person who is like leans people pleasing is going to have a very difficult time with that situation, right? They're going to have a very difficult time resisting other people's opinions about what they're doing. And at the same time, what are your values? What are your values in your home? I mean, there's plenty of values you may have that other families don't share, but just because they don't share them doesn't mean you're changing your mind, Potentially, there's some other child who eats candy all day long, and that's not something you want to do, so you're not doing it, even if they, that parent gave you dirty looks all day. So it's sort, of, it's sort of deciding what you want to do for your family, right? This is your child. This is your family. This is something that doesn't affect grandma, something that doesn't affect friend down the street. They may have opinions. Everyone's always going to have an opinion about someone else, but you can't control what other people think. And if you think that something that you're going to do is going to make someone else think or not think something, then that's like a losing battle. And so what I like to try to tell parents when something is going on between you and your child and other people are watching, whether or not they are judgmental, you know, they may be judgmental of you, they may not, they're just looking at you, that can often make us feel very fight or flighty. Other people are watching me, I feel very anxious. And I may do or say something that I might not do if I were alone with my child, just for the benefit of those other people. So I like to tell parents, really look in your child's eyes, right? And like, imagine it is just you and your child alone. And these people are not there. And what would you do? What is your value? What do you want your child to know? What do you want your child to learn? And stick to that thing. And if people have things to say to you about it, One of my favorite things to say when people are saying, you know, here's what you should do with your child. One of the things I say is, that's an idea, period, right? Like (laughs) that, period. That's the end of your sentence. And, you know, or someone says, well, I think that such and such, you should potty train, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, we feel differently about that, period. Like you don't need to defend anything that you do to anyone else. And people can feel upset about it. That's okay if they're upset about it. No one gets the right to tell you what to do in your home. Yeah, I love that that's a great idea. That's another idea. <laughs> that, that's an idea. Huh. There's nothing else to say after that. You've kind of disarmed the other person. Absolutely. Like, there's no need yeah. for you to defend yourself, right? Like, you can make whatever choices you need to make. So I can think of a lot of scenarios where the behavior that the teenager is experiencing, exhibiting, you know, imposing on us is so adolescent. Yes. Like, it would you would expect that a kid would do that. So does this work in those situations as well? Because that kid probably isn't talking to me about it beforehand. It's probably somewhat impulsive as teenagers are. Like, let's just give an example. So they're lying all the time. Well, that's not uncommon. We all lie, first of all, Mm -hmm. and teenagers are extra specially good at it. So that, like for a lot of us adults, parents, triggers a really strong reaction. You will never lie to me, right? But it's going to happen. So 
in your scenario, maybe we're not looking for something so deep in that story. Maybe it's just... Well, there's two things. There's 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 the tolerating of developmentally normal things, right? Like teenagers are going to seek dopamine-enhancing activities, right? And they're going to they're going to do things that are reckless. They're going to do things that are thrill-seeking because teenagers are drawn to those types of activities because teenagers' brains crave dopamine and they have a higher dopamine response than the average person, right? So something that you might do, Sue, that that gets your brain very dopamine-y and excited, if a teenager did that same thing, they would feel 20 times more excited than you. So the in the teenage years, their brains are experiencing things at a higher level than they ever have before in their lives. And so there are a lot of things that you must tolerate, right? There's going to be a lot of ups and downs of emotion. Like you could get angry at all of these things, but you would be sort of, it's like sort of yelling into the wind, right? These things are going to happen anyway. There's a level of having to self-regulate, self-regulate and There's a level of having to manage your own emotions around normal behavior. And then that's that's one thing, managing your own emotions around normal behavior. And then there's the idea of, you know, lying is sort of, you know, why, again, I'd be curious about why is the child lying? Like, you know, I would want to know, is this just sort of typical, I want autonomy, I want to be able to be free, right, and do my own thing, which most teenagers want, but are they lying because they don't feel like they have enough autonomy? Like, are they, is this lie something they're doing to, to meet a need of wanting more autonomy than they, than they actually have in the dynamic that you have going on and the agreements that you have? Potentially, this child needs more freedom. Potentially, they wouldn't lie if they were able to do X, Y, and Z that met their need. So there's, there's two things, right? There is tolerating normal behavior and sort of regulating yourself rather than reprimanding your child. And then there's also being curious about it and finding out what is underneath. I think we have a lot of, we focus so much on what is the behavior. Is it the behavior what we want or is it what we don't want? Rather than looking underneath at the needs, right? All behaviors are happening in the service of meeting a need. Every single behavior. And if we look more at what, what function is this behavior serving? What need is it meeting? Then we have like there's like you know infinite ways to meet needs, right? But but when we only look at the behavior, we foreclose upon the idea that potentially this child has a need that they're meeting in in a inefficient way. That if they had more information, they would make a different choice. But children don't really allow us to have influence over them in that way if they don't trust us. I love everything you're saying. I feel like it requires so much parenting in two ways. One is not being angry all the time because it feels like they're not following the rules. And the Mm -hmm. other is we're caught off guard a lot of times. Like our kid went from not doing these behaviors to suddenly doing these behaviors. And it, it just, it's hard to have a prepared reaction that isn't like, what the heck is going on here? So both of those cases had how like, You understand this big picture and you see it working. But for us as parents, that feeling of just being mad, just like, why? Yeah. And I think that that's really important. I think it's important for parents to have a place where they can offload these feelings. It may be normal for, you know, a 15-year-old to have 
you know, meltdowns and slam doors and all these things, that may be normal. It doesn't mean it's easy to witness or experience. So I think it is important for parents to have a place, whether it's a friend, whether it's uh, someone else who is a parent of a teenager who can really understand what you're going through, a therapist, your spouse, if you're very close to them, somewhere where you can offload those feelings of frustration and anger, right? Because it doesn't belong going toward your child. Your child doesn't deserve to be reprimanded for just growing up, right? And so it's, it's, but at the same time, your feelings matter too. It just is, you need to take care of your feelings in adult appropriate ways. We have a lot of things that we can do. We can go to people, we can go to therapists, da, da, da. But kids don't really have a lot of choice, right? Like they can't just go to a therapist without the help of an adult. So there are some scenarios that I can think of where we've all talked through these and it doesn't necessarily solve the the root of the problem. Like, for example, nagging your kids about chores. We talk about this topic so much at your teen because no parent goes into parenting, has children so that they can walk around following them and nagging them. Like, it's awful. But the task at hand isn't getting done. Yeah. Any tips there? This is where it really helps to have a good relationship with your teen. We want our teens to care that something is bothering us, right? We want them to like, I've been doing all the laundry myself. I've washed all the dishes myself. I'm doing all this work. We want them to care about those things. They don't care when they're four years old. So there's a lot of parents I work with with four-year-olds and they're like, why aren't they helping? It's like, because four-year-olds have no idea like all the work you're doing. But a 15-year-old might actually have an idea, right? So the idea is, do they have the sense from you that you make a lot of time that you give a lot of airtime and consideration to their needs, their concerns, the things that bother them, the things that aren't working for them. Because if they do, if they have a sense that you do feel that you, that they, that you understand them and you make lots of attempts to understand them and hear their point of view, then they will also hear yours. And they will be more likely to be able to say, okay, I get what you're saying when you're saying you're kind of taxed because you're doing all the housework, right? So that's one thing. And then at the same time, there's a lot of times where we unilaterally make these decisions, like you're going to feed the dog. It's your job to feed the dog. Well, if I'm a teenager who really hates feeding the dog, maybe that was a, a not a great thing to do. And I'm, I'm going to like resist that and give you a lot of problems. But maybe I don't really care about dishwashers being emptied. And if you would ask me to do that, I might not have given you any pushback at all. So I think what's really important to tell kids who are older, like, here are all the jobs that have to be done. Which ones do you want to do? Right? Like, because there might be something that your kid is happy to do if they get to choose it. But oftentimes we just tell kids this is what's happening. And so, of course, they're going to resist that. Nobody, we wouldn't want that if we walked into work and someone says this is what's happening, whether you like it or not we would feel resistant. Whether or not we would do that because maybe we want the money or what have you, we would feel angry inside. And our kids, and we maybe have more, you know, brain development to put the brakes on our reaction when we're feeling angry, but teenagers don't have that. I'm thinking if you have more than one kid, that might be a time for like, you know, family meeting, which probably gets some eye rolls. Absolutely. Family meetings can work, but I think what's really important is to make sure you're not making unilateral unilateral decisions. I think when it comes to teenagers, any unilateral decision you make is going to backfire on you. Talk about defiant, right? Teenagers are really, they have an inborn drive for autonomy. And whenever we are putting lockdowns on their autonomy, we're going to get a lot of conflict. 
So we really need to think about how to work with teens from a collaborative point of view. And you think that's always? I think that's always. I think that's always with all the people. (laughs) I don't think that's just with teenagers. I I don't want anyone talking to me in any unilateral way. Never. Yeah, no, it's true. not going to work. Really true. Okay, so, um, you know, for the people that are listening to this, They've got buy-in, you know, like they're, they're like, this sounds kind. It sounds like a kinder world. I want to be that kind of parent. And yet we all have these patterns that we've developed over the years from how we were raised. And then we have teenagers. So for many years, we've been talking to our kids in a particular way and interacting and maybe a more, we, we don't, we say maybe we didn't punish our kids, but we gave them natural consequences. If we want to be changing that pattern, how do we do that when it's, for some of us, so entrenched in how we've been behaving. If you have teenagers, if all of your children are teenagers, I would have a sit down with them and just, I would let them know. Because if you suddenly begin acting differently, they will be weirded out by that. They feel like, what is happening? Why are you doing that? So I might have a conversation with them and saying, you know, I've, I've decided that I want to be a different kind of parent and I want to be more collaborative. So you will you know, letting them know what to expect. You will see me doing X and you will see me doing Y and you will not see me doing X and you will not see me doing Y, right? Like I would give them a little bit of a heads up and let them know that you're turning over a new leaf so that they know what to expect. What I would be doing myself if I am that parent who's really trying to make this change when my children are already teenagers is first of all, being compassionate with myself and with my children. If I'm suddenly all of a sudden trying to be collaborative where in the past I might have been more unilateral using punishments and adult-imposed consequences, when I'm suddenly not doing that, I'm going to see a lot of different behaviors from my child. So there's going to be a lot of things that I will have to tolerate. I will be tolerating a lot of my child testing me. What do you mean you're not going to react to that? Like, what do you mean you're not going to punish me from doing this? Let me just see. Let, Let me see what happens if I do this thing. So you're going to see a lot of testing. Right? When, any, when a parent changes the way they're behaving about something, a child is going to test that and see, is this really true? Is this, is really, is this really what you're going to do? They're going to want to have proof of that. So you're really going to have to double down on your own self-regulation again. Um, your child is going to test that, and they're going to dial up behaviors likely, and you will really be called to, to use these new skills. At the same time, I don't think that anybody should be doing any of these things in it all by yourself, right? Like potentially there's a friend you have who's trying to do the same thing, or there's a therapist you're working with, or a parenting coach you're working with, because this is really hard to do. It's really hard to manage all of the emotional conflicts that can arise when you're suddenly taking a turn in your parenting. At the same time, Most teenagers, if you said, you know, I'd really like to be more connected with you, I'd really like to be more collaborative, I don't really like sort of handing down these unilateral declarations and rules, and I really would like you to be more a part of, you know, making the rules that happen in the house so it doesn't feel like everything is so imposed on you, you're getting older, I want to include you in decision making. Most teenagers would love that and feel so respected that you are interested in listening to them and considering their opinion about things. So I think, you know, in some ways it could be great for parents and and for kids to really know that a parent is doing this because they want to be connected with the child and, and feeling good about that. Like I'm so important to my parents that they really want to do this differently. I, I love when you talk about the way that it's true for all people. Because we are now taking kids as like kind of 
possessions is the wrong word, but you know, this feeling that we have control over them and moving them into the category of all people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's love it's such so lovely, like to treat kids as people. Well they are instead people instead of <laughs> they are yeah, actually they are people. people. They are, they are people. they are actually people. <laughs> so like when we don't treat them as people, right? Like they really feel that. They really feel like, wow, like I don't even get to be a person. Right. And if you can imagine what it felt like for you when you were younger, when adults sort of glossed over or dismissed or disregarded what you felt about a situation and how that just feels really bad. It feels like no one cares what I think. And that is such a difficult feeling to have. And if you can imagine that when children, right, it's a difficult feeling to have as an adult person. But when you're a child who lacks impulse control and brain development, and you feel badly, like no one feel, nobody cares what I think, you will act mu- in much more challenging ways. Okay, and here's our last question. We ask all of our guests, what is the biggest myth about raising teenagers? Mm. I think the biggest myth about ra- raising teenagers is that they are, you know, that they're always moody, that they're always sort of uh, like unpleasant, right? Like unpleasant to be around, like, oh, like, you know, uh, you know, people are usually saying things around like, oh, you don't want, you know, that there, she's really going to be a handful when she's 14. Like this idea that teenagers are this thing you dread, right? I don't think that. I, I work with so many just amazing, amazing kids who are so thoughtful, so kind, so deeply feeling and sensitive, but their parents are because of their own upbringing and their own fear for their child's safety, really, like their child's safety in the world in the future, they're missing all of that. They're missing all of this good stuff about their kid because they're in a lot of conflict with them out of fear that something bad will happen to them, right? And and I think a lot of parents don't realize that, you know, that teenagers really need their parents to be this soft place for them to fall. The world is like they're the world is like a a harsh place, you know? And, you know, can they come home and know that this is the place where everything is like warm and fuzzy? Because even though they're teenagers and they really are pushing for this autonomy and sort of resisting you and pushing you away, they need you every bit as much as a seven-year-old does. So I, I really feel like it's important not to take the bait of the pushing away that a teenager does and still remain very available to them. It's really beautiful. It also involves redefining how we see the parent-child relationship, especially with a teenager. Indeed. Thank you so much for coming here and talking about this really beautiful model. Hopefully, many of our listeners will decide to try it. Dr. Nanika Kaur, I just want to thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. 
You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.